Alright, good evening. It's gonna be changing, guys. So tonight we're talking about the baptism and temptation of Jesus. And I've entitled the uh, section Empty in the Desert. And we'll get to that towards the last half of tonight. But uh, we're gonna go through this chronologically just a little bit as far as introducing the story. First, so the lives of Jesus and John the Baptist were quite different. John the Baptist, as far as we know, spent a lot of his childhood and young adult life in the wilderness. And when he preaches, he preached in the wilderness. And people came to hear him there. Jesus, on the other hand, um, traveled around. He visited towns. He lived among the people. And he is, if you look in his Gospels, all over Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and in Samaria, he, he basically covers the whole map of Israel during his time, which John the Baptist spends all of his time, as far as we know, in one place, which is down close to Jericho. <clears throat> Their ministries did share one very interesting thing in common, and that is that they both began in the wilderness, or in the desert, because if you see the Judean wilderness, you realize that it looks a lot like this. Luke chapter 3, verse 2 tells us, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And then a chapter later, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Following that, it says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. So the question for tonight is, what was it about the wilderness that prepared these two for the mission that God had for them? Brings me to another question. How do you know when you're ready for the next step of life? So, all of you made a decision come here. Someday you're going to leave. And do you remember what it felt like before you came? What Mountain View felt like? I remember, you know, it's been like 28 or 29 months for me. It's like, I had been here before, I knew the place, I knew a lot of people here, but there's still this terrifying sense of the unknown. And then you come here and the unknown becomes the known, and then you think about going home, and it's the same thing. There's a terrifying sense of the unknown. It's like, what? Okay. But those are just the normal changes in life. I don't really enjoy making big decisions. One of the questions that comes with big decisions is, uh, how do I know if I'm ready for this? So, moving home to Pennsylvania sometimes looks pretty big because there's things that have to get figured out. I remember when I called Rita's dad, which was around 13 years ago, and uh, it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever done, and I didn't realize that that phone call was the start of a journey of a lot of unknowns that just kind of continued, because you can say, well, you get this figured out, yeah, but then there's the next unknown, and you get that figured out, well, then there's the next one, and there's it's just this, I'm realizing that you don't come to a point where, oh, okay, now I've got it figured out. And everything else is within the realm of order. We could say it's like, no, life is a journey. And there's these continued things on the horizon that constantly like niggle at the back of my mind thinking, okay, how am I gonna figure this out? And with that decision-making process comes the question, how do I know if I'm ready? <clears throat> what does it really take to be ready for the calling that God has on your life. So last week we talked about John the Baptist and some of what he had to say, and I made this statement. 
Sometimes God strips us of our crutches and coping mechanisms so we can experience true healing and really know that he is there. I talked about that in uh, referring to John the Baptist when he was in prison, going from a life of effective, compelling, um, driven ministry where there was a lot of results to suddenly having all of that taken away from him and alone in a prison cell. And how did God took away everything he had and all that he had known. So we know that Jesus and John the Baptist were both filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew is clear that John the Baptist was from the womb, so from before he was born. It interestingly does not say that about Jesus. It just says that after he was baptized, the Spirit came down and descended on him, and from that point on, he was full of the Holy Ghost. Now, I don't think the uh, I don't think it matters that much whether or not he was before his baptism or after or just after. But here's the question I have with that. Why wasn't it enough for Jesus to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I'll, I'll, I'll set up my question a little bit better for you. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and yet before he started his ministry, he needed to spend time somewhere else. Why was that somewhere else so important? we're going to get to this a little later, we see that it's necessary, it was necessary for Jesus to go where he went next. Let's start with the baptism of Jesus first. I don't look at this story not just as history, but I want to see this story as a pattern for how our lives are lived out. So for those of you that were here during my Genesis and Exodus classes, one of the things we did was look at these stories and see them for more than just being something that happened in history but a pattern that sets out who we are and why we respond to situations the way we do. And I'm seeing that that sort of pattern has also played out in the early part of the ministry of Jesus. So, let's look at Jesus and John the Baptist. This is from Matthew chapter 3 in the complete Jewish Bible. People went out to him from Jerusalem, from all Judea, and from the whole region around the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were immersed by him in the Jordan River. All right, what's going on? What's this all about? So in Leviticus, um, God had laid out certain regulations, we call them regulations, we call them laws, you can call them mitzvah, whatever you want to call it, regarding something called ritual purification, or ritual cleansing was another word for it. They called it uh, mikvah. And there was a number of different times that you would do this, and some of these are recorded in scripture. For example, when... Uh, Jesus told the blind man that he healed to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus was telling him, you have been healed, and now you can go do your ritual purification again. When Jesus came to Peter uh, and began to wash his feet, Peter asked Jesus to wash also his hands and his head. That was what happened in mikvah. So what is mikvah? Well, mikvah was what you did before a meal time. Mikvah was what you did when you went to the temple. And they actually built these bathhouses that you can see ruins of around the entrances to Solomon's temple, or sorry, not Solomon's temple, but Herod's temple, that was there during the time of Jesus. These are called mikvahs, or mikvah pools. What you would do is when you came to the temple and you wanted to go into the temple mount, or onto the temple proper, you had to first ceremonially, ceremonially cleanse yourself. And that's where this idea of baptism come from, comes from. It's this symbolic washing off, preparing myself, for what's going to come next. Now this happened throughout the course of Christian uh, history as well. 
Uh, a lot of Bibles will translate the word baptism as immersed. We, as you have noticed, do not immerse, but we also don't do other things that the early church did, like baptize people naked. That would kind of be scandalous in our congregations, but that was also a practice at some point during early church history. But it was a sim seen as a symbol of a fresh start, and it was not necessarily something you only did once. This was something that was centered around the idea of commitment or recommitment. So maybe you would be baptized and then later you would decide that I would like to be baptized again. Not because the first one wasn't good enough, but because of the, it's me making a public statement of something that's happening within my heart or symbolically. So John's message was one of repentance. What did that mean to them? Repentance is the Hebrew word teshuva. And one of the interesting things about Hebrew is that there's uh, so if you want to describe a word, you give a picture. In English, we often give a definition, don't we? We would use words to describe words. They use pictures to describe words. So when you read the book of Psalms, for example, and you read that uh, God is like the sun, or David says that God is my rock, or he is my shade, what he's inviting us to do is to think about David's relationship with God, how he sees God at the moment. David's in a hot, dry place. God is the rock, the one that doesn't move, the one that provides for his, uh, that, that gives him shade, etc., things like that. So the word repentance is centered around the picture of their Jewish idea of tzedakah. There's a couple of different Hebrew words that I'm going to throw out at you here. Tzedakah is righteousness. Now, they saw being saved as being on the path of righteousness, or like Psalm 23 says, the paths of righteousness. So they didn't think of uh, being saved necessarily as making a verbal commitment or something like that. The question was much more, well, are you on the path of righteousness or aren't you? That's how they saw this idea of salvation. So it was much more how you acted than what you said. Repentance had four, had four, uh, four definitions, four meanings. And here's the picture that was drawn. So uh, I'll first give you the New Testament one. The, first, the New Testament word for sin is hamartea, and it means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. You pull back your bow, you shoot an arrow, and you missed. That's the word hamartea. That means to you just you missed the mark. That's what it means to sin. Well, in the Old Testament, sin meant that you wandered away from the path. So the place that you were supposed to be was walking on the paths of righteousness. And when you sinned, you had left the path. David, for example, says again in Psalm 23, he restores my soul. What he means is that he took me from where I was off the path and brought me back to it. So the word repentance has four uh, parts to it. So here's the path. I am in sin. I am walking away. The first part of repentance means that I heard the voice of God calling me. Second part is I turned around. Third part, I began to walk back. And the fourth part of repentance is that now I am finally back on the paths of righteousness. And so there's a progression that happens. And they didn't, you didn't really have one without the other, but they recognized that repentance was a process, not necessarily something that, oh, I realized I was doing wrong, bang, now I'm back exactly where I'm supposed to be. It was more they recognized that we were on a journey, or that they were on a journey. What does that have to do with the baptism of Jesus? or with the baptism that was happening in those days. The other thing that they recognized 
was that repentance, or teshuva, was an act that required the grace of God in the life of the person, not just the willpower of the individual. And that is brought out in the Book of Lamentations when the writer says this. Adonai, turn us back to you, and we will come back. Interesting wording, isn't it? We would generally tend to think of it as, are you going to turn back or aren't you? And there is a point to that, logic. But even in the Old Testament, they recognize that it takes an act of grace from God for someone to be able to live in repentance or to be able to complete this idea of teshuva. So Israel was experiencing teshuva, or repentance, under the preaching of John the Baptist. People were repenting. This was evidenced by the fact that they were confessing. It says they were turning from their sins. <coughs> and they acted this out through this idea of baptism, or mikvah, by symbolically purifying themselves from their old ways. Okay, so now we come to the baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is generally seen as the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. We basically read nothing about him up until this point. So why did Jesus need to be baptized? Again, we're talking about teshuva, repentance, what it means to turn from your old life and start back on the path of righteousness. Well, if we believe that Christ was without sin, that he has nothing to repent of, complete Jewish Bible, Jesus tells John this. Let it be this way now, because we should do everything that righteousness requires. Jesus is making a statement that recognizes that righteousness requires me to turn from something. So the idea of righteousness and repentance went hand in hand. You could not have righteousness without the repentance, without the turning away. That's going to play into what happens next in the life of Jesus. Think about the picture of freedom in Hebrew. We've talked about this before. For them, freedom meant the memory of what happened when God took them out of Egypt. This idea that Egypt was sin was firmly entrenched in the Hebrew mind. That was the old life, and you see this idea, or that word picture coming out of the uh, epistles, especially by Paul, talking about how that you have this old life that we're leaving behind. When they thought old life, they thought Egypt. They start out Passover saying, our fathers were slaves in Egypt. We were slaves in Egypt. <clears throat> what happens after Egypt? God called us out of Egypt and into the promised land. And if only the story would actually work out that way. What happened to Israel between the old life and the new one? Paul wrote about their baptism in the sea in 1 Corinthians. And that was followed by a 40-year period, not in the Promised Land, but in the desert. John spent his life in the desert. Israel spent 40 years. Jesus spent 40 days. Why is the desert so important? 
what is up with that and why? Back to my question earlier, how do I know if I'm ready for the next step? Luke 4 tells us specifically that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and power after his baptism. Why wasn't that enough? Now, I'm going to try something here. Because this is the idea that came to my mind as I was thinking about this in preparation for tonight. Am I right that our mindset tends to be Okay, so we, we so we're on the same page in terminology. You know what it's like to live a life of struggle and wishing you were at a place that you're not. Can you relate with that idea? Is it right that we tend to think that if I could just add enough of God to my life, then these problems would go away? Does that sound correct? Because I remember, I remember when I was younger, before I really began to experience God, and, I, and by younger I mean like your age, um, I remember thinking like, okay, there's got to be something I'm missing, but I don't know what it is. And I, and I, I remember thinking and having this desire that if only I could experience God and have a connection with him, that would fill in the gap for what's not working right in my life. So I think we have this idea that if we could just add enough of God or get him in the right spot or get more of the Holy Spirit or something, that the rest of our problems would go away. That would maybe give me the power that I'm missing to live above sin or to, you name it, to take care of whatever it is that I'm dealing with. Things would go right if I just got enough of God. I could be who I'm supposed to be. But that isn't how it worked out for Israel. Why did they have to go to the desert? This is what God says, or Moses, this is what he says to the children of Israel uh, in writing the book of Deuteronomy at the end of his life. This is again taken from the complete Jewish Bible. You are to remember everything of the way in which Adonai led you these 40 years in the desert, humbling and testing you in order to know what was in your heart, whether you would obey his mitzvot or not. Now, mitzvot is a commandment. He humbled you allowing you to become hungry, then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever known, to make you understand that a person does not live on food alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of Adonai. Israel needed the desert. Why? We talked about this in Exodus class, but most of you weren't here, so we'll go back and talk about it a little bit again. It's one thing to take Israel out of Egypt. That only takes a trip. That's it. It's completely another thing to take Egypt out of the Israelites. And that took 40 years. Why did God take them to the desert? Moses lays it out for them here. God brought you 40 years into the wilderness to test you. He wanted to see what was in your heart. And he wanted you to understand that there's more to life than the material things. Deuteronomy 8 goes on to say, what Israel found in the desert. Hunger and thirst. You know the desert? For those of you that haven't been there, you're about three days from death, like all the time. Now you are now, too, if you'd stop eating and drinking. But there you really are. You know what it's like to be thirsty and have no water? And truly, really, truly be in need? 
You're three days from death all the time. They were hungry and thirsty, and then they deal with these poisonous snakes. And I think I'm going to take the time to talk about that right now, but there's a lot wrapped up into that here. Here's the thing. They weren't just adding God to their lives in the desert. God was using those 40 years to strip away everything else that they had relied on so that they would know that he is God. All their self-sufficiency and idols were being stripped away because the desert is the place where we go to be empty. How do you know if you're ready for the next step? I keep coming back to that question. I think we tend to think that when we feel strong, empowered, we know what we're doing, God is with us, we, we've got the, the zeal and the drive and the energy and every, all the pieces are falling together, we feel in the zone, that that's when we're ready. And that is completely not how Jesus came out of the wilderness. The wilderness isn't the place where we go to be empowered, it's the place where we learn to trust because effective ministry does not play, take place in power and ability. It takes place in emptiness. So Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's ready for action, and he has just one more step to make. I want to read this from the Dalich in Mark chapter 1. This is right at the end of Jesus' baptism. There was a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am pleased. Quickly the Spirit brought him out to the wilderness. If you look at the King James Bible, it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. <clears throat> Mark makes it abundantly clear that that was exactly where he was supposed to be. Matthew records that Jesus was in the wilderness so that he could be tempted by Satan. Now, the word Satan in Hebrew means adversary. <clears throat> and it's not necessarily always capitalized. So when you read through some of this, it'll say the adversary came to him more than just... Uh, more general term, I should say, than Satan. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are. So what does the temptation of Jesus have to tell us about ourselves? I think we're going to take the time to read through that in Matthew 4. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. When he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered, and when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, setteth him on a pillow of pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee. <coughs> And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest thou, dash, lest thou at any time dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Three temptations of Jesus. The first one, command these stones to be made bread. The second, throw yourself down from the temple inside of the city of Jerusalem. And the third, (coughs) 
or should we only give you the world? What are the lies that are wrapped up in those three temptations? We're going to take the time to dig much more deeply into that, but this is a quick summary. First temptation, your value and identity comes from what you do. Turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, you can do that. Second temptation, prove you're the Messiah in front of everybody. The lie is that your identity is found in the approval and acceptance of the people around you. And thirdly, if you worship me, I'll give you everything. Your identity is found in what you have. And as I look at myself, it's not too hard to find me, is it? <clears throat> or you in those temptations. Because all of those things are places where we look to for identity. What we have, what we do, what people think about us, what's happened to us. We get our identity from all of those things. And Jesus went to the desert to face that. <clears throat> what do we find in the adversity of the desert? We find everything we've been relying on that isn't working anymore. That's why we're in the desert. Because sometimes God has to take us <coughs> to those places before we actually realize that what we thought was us being in a good place was us hobbling along, being somebody other than what Christ has made us. You know what happens when you hit boot camp in the Marines? They take your clothes. You wear the same shirt. You wear the same pants. You wear the same boot as everybody else. You have the same haircut. And you don't get to call your mama. You get one phone call. And then you hit boot camp. And you're off the grid for the next 10, 12 weeks, whatever it is. Do you know why they do that? It's because they're stripping you of your identity. And most of the time, your identity is pathetic. That's why. I was at Passion back in 2007 for the guys' camp for an extended weekend. First thing we did when we got there was put on the clothes they gave us. I think we could wear hats. They took our watches, they took our cell phones, they took everything. And when you stood next to the guy beside you, you had no idea if he was beachy or BMA or Baptist. And at that point, it really didn't matter because all those identifying markers had been taken away. And they weren't all of those things anymore, they were just a person. Now you might think, big deal. Uh-huh, until you're the guy with the buzz cut that looks exactly the same as the other 400 people around you. And then we'll find out how much identity and value you place in how you look. Some of those things we don't realize until they're taken away. What the military does, the Marines, for example, is they put you intentionally in the desert, so to speak, so they can rob you of your identity and form a new one. Now, I'm not saying that the new one they give you is any better than the one you had, but it serves their purpose, which is to take you from being an individual to take you to being a member of a team. We hide a lot. Sorry, we hide behind a lot of things to avoid the pain and loneliness of believing in these lies. We hide behind our work, our clothes, 
our friends, our distractions, anything really. But you take those things away and we realize just how lost and empty we are. And usually what happens when you discover that, you start asking the question, how in the world could God ever use a broken, empty, messed up person like me? And you don't even realize that you're just getting started. Finally, being qualified. Because that's what God wants. Not the proud go-getters, but the empty and broken. Kirk Hoffman, when he was uh, speaking last summer at our Advent meetings, um, the man that spent a number of years in Liberia, he was there during the Civil War about 20 years ago, and had to be uh, flown out uh, on a U.S. military chopper, I believe, to an aircraft carrier to escape the country. He said this, after his years in the mission field, he said this, to the results-driven endurers among us, the work of the Holy Spirit looks like chaos. And he went on to add something like, because it doesn't look like anything's getting done. We'd like to go right from baptism and repentance to the promised land, and yet too often the desert is needed to empty us first. Because a lot of the time, we try to add God without realizing that there's no room for him. I think it was D.L. Moody that said, there's many a man praying, asking God to fill him when he is already full of something else. So, what sustained Jesus in the desert? You notice the first uh, response of his to the temptation of Satan. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What was the word that proceeded from the mouth of God? Directly before this, Jesus heard this these words. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. What sustained Jesus in the desert? This is what God said. You are my son. I love you. And I am satisfied with you. And that was enough. That's all you need to survive. The healing and miracles would come later. So did the cross. The desert exists to teach us that we are not enough and that he is. And that that's all you need. I remember, I'll close with this story. Um, so, about two years after we got married, uh, Karita was really struggling with um, OCD, some of those things, and we decided to go for counseling. So we went and spent a week at a counseling center and uh, had a really, really good week. A lot of really good things happened for both of us. And uh, this was 2014, so it was like nine and a half years ago. And we had a great time. Great week, very effective. And before we came to Mountain View, back in 21, we, did, we just decided that, you know what, it'd be good for us to go back and just spend a couple of more days there, because we know we're coming to Mountain View, and we have to be perfect here. Not that. But we know we're coming here, and we thought it would just be good to have a refresher. So we spent two days with Kevin Troyer, our counselor, and <clears throat> this was 
think it was the middle of April of 21. It was like less than a month before we moved here. And he, um, we had a three-hour session, I think Monday afternoon, and another one Tuesday morning. And we were talking through various things during our Monday morning session, and I made some kind of comment about struggling with assurance of salvation. And he just looked at me and he said, Nate, you're a preachy preacher and you're telling me that you struggle with assurance of salvation. Now, he didn't say this demeaningly. He was just pointing that fact out. And I'm like, yeah. And so we, we, he dug around on that comment a bit. And then he said something to the effect of Nate, okay that you're not. And I, I just kind of looked at him like it didn't click. Later that evening, because we spent we spent the night there and spent some time walking around trails and things like that. And later that evening I came to the realization that the things I had learned the first time we were there, and the kind of person that I was determined not to be was exactly the kind of person that I was turning out to be. And it was a really, really difficult thing to experience. And we got into our counseling session the next morning, and I was just absolutely flattened. Like, I felt like the wind had just been taken out of my sails. I just felt like a complete failure. And he looked at me and said, I like what I see this morning as opposed to what I saw last night. And I was like, there is no way. And yet, what he was pointing out was that I went from being the confident, self-confident person who had the world by the tail to the one he realized that he was in need. And I realized that in the emptying of what I thought was a bad thing was actually God taking away the parts of me that weren't relying on him. And in my emptiness, I found that that was the most satisfying fulfilling place to be because I was trusting in his power instead of trying to rely on my own. That's what it means to be empty. So often it takes us going through a difficult time to realize that the crutches that we're using to prop ourselves up really aren't doing us any good. And so it is okay to sit back and say, you know what, I'm not enough. It doesn't end there because we recognize that I'm not, but he is. And that is enough. I think we're going to have class Thursday night again. It's on the schedule. Um, I've got to take care of the doctor that afternoon, so we're going to plan that way, but I may end up.